Welcome to the Kauffman Foundation's Uncommon Voices series, in which we highlight people who are working to make sure all Americans, regardless of their race, gender, or geography, are able to share in our country's prosperity. In this episode, Melissa Roberts Chapman, a senior program officer for the Kauffman Foundation, leads a conversation about the historic inequities in access to capital financing that have been amplified during the pandemic. She was joined by entrepreneur Chris Evans, and Ruben Alonzo, president of AltCap. Here's Melissa. Hi guys and welcome. Thank you so much uh, for joining me for a quick conversation on access to capital um, in Kansas City and also for entrepreneurs around the country in the age of COVID. So I'm so pleased that you were able to take the time to join us today. Maybe let's start by each introducing ourselves. I'll start off. Ruben Alonzo, I'm the president of AltCap. We're a community development financial institution uh, here in Kansas City. Uh, I've been uh, fortunate enough to be the steward of, of AltCap for the last 12 years and um, have seen the organization grow from uh, what started out as just kind of a, a specialized tax credit financing institution to um, a small business micro lending CDFI. Good morning. My name is Chris Evans. I'm the president of T-Shirt King Incorporated. Uh, we're a family-owned business. My parents started in 1985. Uh, I've been the president since 2004. Uh, T-Shirt King specializes in decorated apparel as well as promotional products. So we work with uh, everything from sports teams, schools, churches, uh, businesses, local government, small businesses. Awesome. Thanks. And I'm Melissa Roberts Chapman. I lead the Heartland strategy here at the Kauffman Foundation. And that's really our efforts to grow and elevate the entrepreneurial community in what we call the Heartland region. For us, that includes the states of Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas. And oftentimes you'll hear me call them the mink states or the mink region. So when we think about diverse communities, you know, my home state of Kansas may not always be at the top of the list for people around the country, but those of us who live here know that our reality is somewhat different than popular imagination. And from the history of this region to the entrepreneurs that are shaping our economy today, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, immigrant, and intersectional communities are a really important part of what makes the heartland what it is. But the hard truth I think that we have to tell is that today, not everyone in this region has the same access to the resources that they need to start and grow a business here. The entrepreneurs in the heartland report that getting access to capital to start and grow businesses is more of a challenge here than it is nationally. And so if you're asking yourself why you've come to the right place, because that's exactly what we're going to deep dive into today. Chris, you know, tell us about the story, uh, you know, of how you got interested in business, about how you kind of found your way into the family business and, and what that process was like. So growing up, I was uh, eight, nine years old when my parents started the business, and I kind of always had that entrepreneurial itch growing up. Uh, went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, graduated from there, worked in management consulting for several years, and then I went to University of Michigan Business School, and then I thought I would explore uh, investment banking. Um, so during my first year of business school, went to an interview in New York on Wall Street, flew home for spring break, and uh, came and spent the week working with my dad in the business. Uh, he was ready to retire um, from the business and he said, hey, come just check it out, spend the week with me. Um, so I spent the week with him and kind of fell in love with it and decided, you know, this was probably the least risky time in my life. I wasn't married, didn't have kids and said, if I ever wanted to do something entrepreneurial, it'd probably be now, you know, I'm used to college living. 
Um, so I returned, returned back to school, turned down the internship on Wall Street and decided I was going to quote unquote uh, intern with the family business. So I spent the summer, that summer, three months working in the family business. My father let me jump right in. Uh, you know, and one of the things that was cool about our business is it wasn't that typical power, um, power struggle of the young guy coming in. It was, hey man, here it is. It's yours. If you want it, take it, run with it have at it. In all honesty, it was more of a hobby before I came on board. My Both my parents had full-time jobs and this was, you know, money they, they, they used to help pay for college and family trips and things like that. I spent that second year of business school kind of planning, how could I grow the business? What would be the strategic ways to, to grow it, get customers and fulfill orders? And that really made my business school experience pretty cool because I had a built-in case study, uh, if you will, of um, being able to apply that technical knowledge to an actual business. So that helped me out tremendously. I figured I was more on the, knew the business side and had to learn the art and the creative side of t-shirts. So that's kind of what got me into it. I fell in love with just the, the community connection of the t-shirt business. People think of it as just t-shirts, um, but you talk to politicians, you talk to high school principals, you talk to business owners, um, you talk to sports coaches, so it runs the gamut and it's very diverse. So in that vein of kind of running a family business and stepping in, you know, what's, what's the most rewarding part and the most challenging part of working in a family business? The rewarding part is, you know, people really start to know you in the community. Um, there's times, especially in the summer, um, that we feel like we're kind of connected to all the events that are going on in the city. So you know, depending on what we're printing, we know when there's a festival, we know when there's a 5K race, we know when somebody's having a 50th anniversary, you know, when a church is celebrating an anniversary. So really being connected to that community is, is pretty cool. Then on the family side, you know, your younger cousins and your nieces and nephews, um, you know, they always come around the business or whatever, but just seeing um, that they have an appreciation and a respect for somebody that owns a business. You know, and it comes out a little later in life when they say, well, can I get a summer job or can I help out on the weekends? What can I do to earn some money? Or I'm thinking about starting a business. We do a lot of family reunions and, you know, we're probably on the third or fourth generation of, you know, family trees that we have in our database of artwork. And, you know, you work with the great grandmother and my dad worked with the grandmother. And now I'm working with, you know, the current generation and the younger ones. So being, having that connection with families is, is pretty cool, too. Ruben, I want to hear a little bit more about, about your background, too. How, of all of the many different things you can do in the world of finance, how the heck did you end up in a CDFI in Kansas City? Tell that story. Yeah, good question. It was like, Chris, um, Wall Street was in my future. Um, I uh, started uh, um, with Solomon Smith Barney out of college um, doing uh, corporate accounting, corporate finance. But at the end of the day, you know, accounting corporate finances wasn't wasn't my destiny so burned all my suits and joined the peace corps and um did that for a couple years and when i finished that i came back to the states um got a master's degree in public policy focusing on economic development i ended up working for a um, minority business development center in la um, so got introduced to the challenges minority businesses have in terms of accessing um you know capital contracting and, and really just the things uh, that um, they need to kind of grow as a business. As I look to kind of see what the next step would be um, after leaving LA, so ended up here in Kansas City, um, was working for the city of Kansas City, Missouri, 
doing development finance and was introduced to the opportunity to kind of take this organization that was created, AltCap. Um, it was, you know, dormant at the time, but it was created to um, initially bring new markets tax credits to, um, to Kansas City. That's really where AltCap kind of cut its teeth around, you know, um, this whole alternative finance world and, and getting involved in, uh, in, in bringing capital uh, to capital starved communities and, and businesses that are not able to access capital. So we, uh, we kind of took that experience um, and uh, turn, leverage that to, to start doing micro lending, small business lending. So that's where we are today. And that's just really been a, a big part of, uh, of, of the organization and just the, you know, um, the passion of everybody who works for AltCap. You know, you mentioned, you know, racial justice. And um, for us, a big part of that is, is economic justice, closing the wealth gap in the U.S. Uh, um, to, to us, you know, has a lot to do with closing the black wealth gap, which um, I think uh, is, is, uh, has seemed to, to really um, have a huge impact in communities in terms of, you know, economic empowerment and wealth building and, and generational wealth. Yeah, Ruben, so you've talked about your team um, and the amazing group of people that you work with a couple of times. You know, tell us a little bit more about them. Yeah, they're, um, they're just really great colleagues, great friends. I mean, just uh, the, the, the passion that they bring every day, the energy that they bring every day. Um, you know, they, they've worked so hard uh, to get us to where we are now. We've had a, a really intense experience the last three months, um, you know, standing up this COVID-19 loan fund and uh, really trying to uh, help as many small businesses as possible. I want to share a picture of them. Um, one, just to show you the team, but also show you the high quality t-shirts that Chris Evans uh, <laughs> produces at T-Shirt King. I love it. Yeah, so this beautiful. Is, Thanks. Yeah, this is this is my team. A few weeks ago, decided to uh, to give them each um, you know Superman and Wonder Woman t-shirts just to to show my appreciation for for the incredible work they did over the last three months. And, you know, they're my my heroes uh, in terms of what they were able to accomplish and and all the small businesses that they were able to support. That is so great. And Chris, I want to hear about you know when you stepped into the business when you took over the family business. In those early days, you know, how did you start making decisions about, you know, how you were going to finance the business, about the banking relationships that you were going to pursue? Initially, we were with the local bank, and this was in 2004. So we used to spend a lot of time traveling to sorority and fraternity conventions around the country. So it was very easy to make deposits in a, na a national bank instead of carrying cash in a van with T-shirts, you know, it was a little bit risky. Um, so being able to make those deposits in different cities was was a huge factor. Um, so it was technology and accessibility uh, in the beginning. Um, and at the time, some of the local local banks, smaller local banks, just didn't provide that. So that was the, that was a huge huge factor for us early on in the business. Um, as far as, as as accessing capital, I mean, black people have just had a tough time with banks dating back from you know post-slavery and the, the Great Depression and, you know, our deposits not being insured and depositing money and now it's gone because the bank went under. Um, so that, that mistrust of banks has been something that's passed on, unfortunately, from generation to generation to generation. Um, and a lot of times, uh, Black businesses, including ours, uh, you end up, um, because of that stigma with banks, you know, whether you're I mean, you never really know when you're denied, you don't know if you're really denied or is it a racial thing or you, you just, you don't a hundred percent know one way or the other. But I know that it's always easy to get a credit card. 
Um, so a lot of times we finance our businesses through credit cards and figure, you know, in that urgent moment where you have this, this big order of, of three or 4,000 t-shirts and you don't have that cash to pay for them, you put it on a card, doesn't necessarily all get paid off. Um, now you have these high interest payments um, because you didn't have that traditional financing. Um, the challenge becomes um, then once you do go to the bank, they say, well, you have a lot of personal debt, credit card debt. Um, so that kind of puts you in the cycle of now they're definitely denying you because of your personal debt, but in your mind, it's business debt. Um, so that cycle is something that happens in our community much too often. And unfortunately, like credit cards are probably the, the most friendly. Then you have, you know, payday loans that people use and things, just all kinds of, of uh, expensive ways to finance their business. Yeah, that's such an important point. I mean, and I think on top of all of the things that you just listed, community banking is changing in this time. You know, right. people talk a lot about banking regulation and how that's forced consolidation among community banks. But I think one of the things that's really important about that is every time a community bank closes a branch, you lose hundreds of relationships with members right. of the community, with business owners in the community. Um, you know, and here in this region, community banking is extremely important. So, um, you know, we sit in the 10th Federal Reserve District, 95% of the banks here are community banks. Um, but as that consolidation has happened, it's really had an impact on communities that have been systemically left behind, you know, an example between 2006 and 2016, the number of black owned banks or you know, technically FDIC depository institutions um, was cut almost in half. So in late 2016, there were only 24 black owned banks left across the entire country. And I think this is really in my mind where CDFIs come in. CDFIs are designed to fill this gap. You know, they're regulated differently, they're built to build partnerships with banks to help realize a community impact. And so Ruben, you know, can you speak to some of the specific ways that CDFIs, you know, work with banks using AltCap and your experience as an example? Yeah, just to kind of piggyback off of, you know, that, that point about consolidation. I mean, you, you've lost a lot of banks over the last 10 years. Um, and it's, it's definitely had an impact on, on access to capital for a lot of communities. You've just lost that physical presence in those communities, and you know one of the you know things about AltCap is we've we've always made sure to to kind of locate in in you know in um, the communities that we wanted to serve and, and and make an impact in. You know, to Chris's point, I mean, there, there's there's still redlining going on in, in maybe more subtle ways, but you know we we see that in terms of just our uh, interaction with businesses and, and and kind of listening to them and hearing kind of the challenges that they face accessing capital, getting a bank a business bank loan. But then also just, you know, as we approach banks with even a real estate project, um, you know, how they look at a certain part of town and uh, how that kind of factors into their underwriting of a, you know, potential commercial real estate loan. In terms of how we, you know, specifically work with banks, we, um, we've, we started out doing a lot of participation loans with banks through our tax credit financing. We've continued that a little bit with our small business and micro lending. Um, we get a lot of referrals from banks now being a micro lender. So that's a really uh, important relationship for us. Um, you know, we, we always tell our banking um, partners, hey, you know, don't, don't say no, say alt cap. If you can't lend to that business, 
you know, send them to us. We'll figure out a way to, to lend to them, especially when it comes to microloans, you know, under $50,000. Most banks you know, really don't even want to deal with loans that's, that size anyway. There's a, you know, a business and kind of economic um, value to banks working with us, but there's also um, a CRA or Community Reinvestment Act um, benefit there as well. So we try to leverage that as much as possible. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. You know, the CRA legislation created in the 70s drastically expanded in the 90s in direct reaction to some of these systemic failures like redlining that led to the widening of that wealth gap over time. You know, can you speak to a little bit about how CRA, you know, is intended and how it impacts your work today? So Community Reinvestment Act, I mean, it was created to essentially trying to address, you know, the redlining that existed in terms of of, of bank lending practices um, over the years, uh, making sure that they, they are lending um, to all communities in their market. CDFI industry or community kind of grew out of the civil rights movement, kind of recognizing you know, certain inequities and disparities and um, injustices around um, specific communities. We were kind of uh, seen as, as a way to, to address some of that by, by bringing, helping to bring resources um, to communities um, that were, you know, underserved, overlooked by, uh, by banks, financial institutions. Chris, you've talked about that Brennan trust of the banking system that runs generations deep, you know, and Ruben, you've talked about the importance of those relationships, you know, spell it out for us. How does having that relationship um, inform your lending and underwriting process? You know, how is that process different than a traditional bank? And Chris, you know, how did that relationship with AltCap show up for you? Hearing things on the news, everything's shutting down, businesses can't operate, what'll happen there's that big, that big question mark. And I think I may have received an email or something from, from AltCap and responded to, you know, complete this information. Um, and prior to that, I had completed information with the, with the SBA and, and uh, um, PPP. And, you know, it just kind of, you filled it out and you didn't hear anything. With AltCap um, being community focused, I filled out the, the one pager on the website and the next day a physical person called me and it was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. So to hear an actual person call me and ask questions about our business um, was phenomenal. Um, and the fact that they knew of T-Shirt King from just being in the Kansas City community um, was very, very comforting. Whereas, you know, the bank that I'm with been there 16 years and I was denied in one click of, you know, we can't do anything for you. I think that's something that, you know, we, we had an early, um, early signals about, you know, how challenging this, this whole pandemic um, was going to be and, and kind of what role we needed to play. So yeah, just being able to, to see that early on uh, and kind of get ready to, to do what we did with the COVID loan fund and, and get, you know, go back out to, to businesses um, that we had worked with, uh, but put out, you know, uh, some, you know, some type of communication that um, uh, we can make sure that businesses in the community knew that there was, there was an option for them to reach businesses like, like Chris and, and T-Shirt King. Awesome. So, I mean, let, let's go back to that time, you know, Chris, talk about how the shutdown, you know, impacted you and your business, what it was like to be making decisions during that time. Earlier, I talked about, um, you know, me enjoying the, the benefits of online banking and, you know, technology. So we have a lot of utilities and things that automatically come out of our, out of our checking account. So one of the first things that I did was 
go to the bank and actually went into the branch as I was trying to apply for a line of credit um, and said, hey, look, at some point, if this thing shuts down the way it's going to shut down, our account's going to go negative. Um, so I wanted to make sure that that shutoff was in place was, you know, one of the first things that I did. Then I spent literally an entire business day calling all of those people that have um, automatic withdrawals in our account um, and asking, what are you guys doing for COVID-19? Is there a forbearance? Or is it delayed payments? Um, you know, do you give one month and then we pay next month? You know, what what is the situation? So I got pretty good at staying on hold and, and calling everybody. Also created a spreadsheet of our suppliers and how much we had that we owed in owed our supplier or would owe our suppliers when the terms came due. So a lot of our suppliers give us 30 day terms on um, on the shirts that we order. And so it's a rolling term. So you always, you know, we typically send weekly payments and just to stay ahead of it, um, but not operating for, you know, three, four or two or three months, those terms would come due. And that's what where all cap kind of really stepped in and, and was that bridge for us of, you know, the money that we got from all cap, we were able to make good with all of our suppliers immediately. Uh, it was good knowing that you went through that process and did everything that you could possibly do uh, to keep your business afloat. What was the moment where you realized that this was going to be, you know, a long-term, I guess, change? And like, tell me about that, like that realization process and how you personally just processed it. So we do a fair amount of business with Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, and, and especially in the spring. And when they called and said, we're sending the kids home for school, so we'll need to cancel these orders. It was like, wow, when, have, when has a college ever sent all of the kids home from school? And at that moment, it really became serious. And I think the next email, um, people in Kansas City know that corporate challenge is a, is a pretty big deal here in the community um, where the different corporations participate in an Olympics, if you will, with a bunch of different events. And we do a fair amount of t-shirts um, for the different corporations to compete in those events. And when they called and said that was canceled, it was like, man, this thing is is really serious. Ruben, you know, I kind of have similar question for you. Like, what was a moment where you realized the impact that this was going to have on the community? How did you react? What were the first couple of things you did? We immediately kind of went into, um, you know, kind of communication mode with with our, our clients, our small businesses, um, you know, working with them to, um, to restructure, modify loans, um, defer payments, kicking into high gear with with the COVID nineteen relief and recovery loan fund was, you know, just our our um, attempt and, and effort with with our partners like Kauffman Foundation and some other civic and business um, business leaders to find a way to to um, ensure that that small businesses had access to capital, some sort of uh, financial lifeline. Um, once the, you know, the economy essentially shut down. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about that. You know, what kind of loans were we doing out of the, out of the COVID relief and now recovery fund, you know, what's the impact been so far? I think it's been, uh, been tremendous, um, you know, uh, to be able to kind of, uh, provide a business, you know, like t-shirt Kings and all the other businesses, you know, we, we've lent to, um, over a hundred businesses right now, provide them that kind of immediate leaf, kind of that breathing room that they needed. Um, to get through the last few months and, and hopefully now kind of on the road to recovery. 
Um, but it was very, you know, intentionally designed and that was through, you know, a lot of conversations um, you and I had and just the rest of the, the partners for the, the relief recovery loan fund, you know, how, how do we structure this to give them, you know, uh, financing terms um, that gave them that patient flexible capital that they can, um, they can use to, um, to kind of recover and hopefully not rebuild. First year is uh, very much a, um, kind of a deferred payment, no interest um, part of the loan. And then it kind of um, stair steps up years two and three, um, very low interest rate, 2% and four and a half percent. So we feel that that three year runway, again, with very kind of um, low cost patient capital um, will allow these businesses to, to take on this debt a lot of businesses are very reluctant to take on this debt, but we feel that we structure this debt in a way that allowed them to, to kind of manage that debt and use those funds to, to address kind of the, the critical aspects of ensuring that their business can uh, um, can recover from, from this, uh, this pandemic. The thing that I think is so remarkable about the team and the work that y'all have been able to do is, you know, we think back to when uh, when the shutdown was first announced. I mean, there was this really two week period where you know we knew that there was something coming from the federal government someday you know there was this like vague hope but nobody really had guidelines the money wasn't being deployed and you guys were on you know in the community almost immediately deploying capital calling people back having human conversations and i remember you saying to me at one point like we've almost become like business therapists we launched this this loan fund late march and we got money out, you know, after the first week, um, but that the response was overwhelming. I mean, more than I think even we thought in the first 72 hours, we had over 600 businesses requesting $30 million in, in financing. Um, and, you know, we were talking about, you know, standing up a, um, at that time, a $3 million loan fund. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of increased that to $5 million, but yeah, it was, it was overwhelming, but to hear, hear, hearing the, the, you know, what those businesses were going through, I mean, it was just um, something that we felt we had we had to be there for them. And I mean, Chris, so like in going through that situation, where'd you turn for support? Where'd you turn for your your business therapy? <laughs> uh, I mean, you have you have friends that are that are also entrepreneurs. I spend a lot of time with my kids and and just doing all kind of random things, watching old movies, uh, looking at old pictures. We had a a family Olympics. My focus then became, okay, I have three months before I have to pay standard bills, um, including payroll, thanks to PPP. Um, But what debt can we cancel in that time? Because our business did start to pick back up. My focus has been, what can we do to eliminate that and have a a more stress-free life? Fortunately, um, as you mentioned before, uh, when I do my spreadsheets, I could actually have less customers and just by the mere fact that we have better financing, be more profitable. Um, That's how bad it is in in accessing capital. It made me really come to that conclusion and realize that, you know, we have to make decisions. We may have to sacrifice some things, but we do have to focus on that a little bit more because when you're in business for as long as we are, you know, the cash kind of flows and you understand January, February is going to be slow, but we'll pick up March and April and you kind of play the cycles. Um, and you never really need that rainy, rainy day fund. Well, this time it really rained and we really needed it. So, you know, we need to make sure we have that in place as well. Yeah. It almost sounds like, like you've hit a reset button. Yes, definitely. Definitely a reset. One of the things 
that I've heard so often, and it is, it is deeply true, is that, you know, COVID didn't cause problems. It just exposed problems that were endemic in society that, that we were ignoring. Yeah, and, right. you know, in the age of, of COVID, in the age of protests against police brutality, I mean, at no time is that more apparent than today. Um, you know, and so I'm going to run through a list of some facts and figures that kind of illustrate, I think, the systemic challenge. 57% of Black people who applied for credit in 2019 were denied or approved for less than requested. 24% of white people were. That disparity holds at every income level. You know, most business starts, we already know, are financed by personal credit, personal savings, and bank loans. 92% of aspiring entrepreneurs across the country cite funds to start the business or grow the business as a challenge. You know, stack that all on top of some of the things that Ruben alluded to earlier in this conversation, and we've talked about the wealth gap, you know, the Brookings Institution found that, you know, Black household net worth, $17,000 on average, roughly 10% the network of the average white household. When you add all that up and we expect everybody to have the same opportunity at starting a business, it just doesn't work. The math just doesn't work. When we talk about systemic racism, when we talk about the dramatic need for systems change, this list of facts and figures is like what's front of mind for me. But Chris, you have shared some really, really interesting thoughts with me about how this is going to impact Black-owned businesses, you know, how PPP and IDLE has played a role, about how hitting that reset button has been powerful for your business. You know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you think this time might change or hope this time might change the availability of funding for Black-owned businesses on a larger scale? Honestly, I think I think some some businesses will come out a lot better than they were before, um, just for the simple fact of you know restructuring your debt can make you a more profitable business. That's just a, a natural fact. Um, and when you have a, a subset of of people in America that haven't had access to um, affordable capital, and it's unfortunate that the world literally had to shut down for us to have an opportunity to get financing from institutions where we feel like race isn't such a huge factor. It's unbelievable uh, talking to a friend of mine, he owns a construction company in Atlanta, and we were talking about the uh, economic disaster loan process and the information that we provided. And it did take some time, but just the, you know, it's almost emotional, the fact that they came back and said, you're approved for this amount, you know, how much do you want? And it's like, um, is this what it's like for other people to go to the bank on a normal basis? And this is kind of a, a, a side note, but my dad and I, we had a real estate company a few years back and he owned his house outright. And we went to the bank and they said that there's no way that you don't have some type of mortgage or rent payment. Prove to us that you don't have a, a rent payment. Like, how do you prove something that doesn't exist? Um, so those types of things are, are very real when it comes to banking. And so for, for me, having gone into banks, and, and I've been in business long enough where a no doesn't really 
affect me. It's just business, okay? You don't like me, I'll go on to the next. Um, but for this is the first time I felt like, okay, I can fill out this application like anyone else is filling out this application and, and I'm actually getting money. And it didn't hurt me. It didn't, it didn't test my, my personal integrity. And I mean, Chris, you've kind of gotten into this in this last kind of answer, but, you know, obviously you're a black man, Ruben, you're a man of color. How, how does your lived experience and your identity kind of impact the business that you run? How does it inform your worldview? How does it inform how you run your business, how you engage in the community? It is who I am and who I've always been. So, you know, uh, W.B. Du Bois talks about the duality of black people in, in, in America and having to, to live that duality. That's, that's just the same for business. Um, I mean, for example, I own the business, but if I, if, I, if I complete an RFP for a business, I'm talking to a buyer and you have to have a, a ton of humility um, because, you know, there's times where I'm delivering the shirts and the person I'm delivering to is looking at me as simply a delivery guy. And I get treated like a delivery guy, but I understand, hey, I'm delivering shirts today. They don't even know that, you know, I'm the one that helped design the shirt or create the shirt, produce the shirt, you know, run the business that made the shirt. But, you know, you get treated like the, like the delivery guy. Can it be tiring at times? Yeah, it can. Um, you know, constantly trying to prove that you're an efficient business or, you know, you can handle a bulk order or a large order. That is something that you have to go through. It's unfortunate, but it, it is definitely something that you have to go through. Ruben, how about you? I would say just, you know, my, my personal experience, I come from a big Cuban family, um, a lot of entrepreneurs in my family. I think the Hispanic Cuban experience is, is very different in this country. The hurdles that they faced, the challenges that they faced, I don't think anything compares to um, to what you know we're dealing with in the black community in terms of you know the severity of of the racism and and kind of the um, the injustice that that you've seen if there's a, a positive to, to what we've gone through the last few months um, just with you know the pandemic civil civil unrest I mean I think it's yeah it's just really shown a light on just how far we still need to go that's what keeps us you know alt cap um, focused. Uh, on what we do. Again, we're, we're playing a small part, uh, but we, we truly believe that there, there's, there's um, you know, a lot to be said for, uh, for creating wealth in communities and for kind of economic empowerment through entrepreneurship and how that can hopefully address some of the disparities there and inequities there and, uh, and bring more, um, you know, more um, community economic development to two parts of Kansas City that in the region that you know, have um, um, just um, have been neglected and, and um, just not not a priority. Yeah. So, I mean, before we before we wrap up this conversation, you know, Chris, I just want to give you this platform for a second. Is there anything else you want to make known about your business, about your community, about how you know this these last few months have gone for you? And I realize that our business is probably more fortunate than a lot of businesses. I understand that, but. Being able to share that there is some positive and, and some hope coming out of this, you know, making your business more efficient, opening up the lines of communication and to be able to approach a bank in a more confident manner. Those are, those are small steps that as a black business owner, sharing that information is important for aspiring entrepreneurs or, or current entrepreneurs 
you know, in, in so many ways in, in our communities, the mistrust of the bank, the mistrust of the government, the mistrust of, of having to pay taxes, the mistrust of, you know, giving so much information that you structure your company in one way or another, you know, I think some of that came out as well in that, you know, so many companies and businesses that are pillars in the community refuse to, you know, use a payroll service and pay payroll taxes. Therefore, they weren't applicable for PPP. And sharing my story helps you to formalize um, your business. You know, for, you know, you could easily pay yourself and not pay taxes. Then when a situation comes around like this, it looks as if you've never made money. So, you know, you don't qualify for unemployment. So helping people to understand that it is important to legitimize your business in order to take that greater leap forward. You have to expose your details in order to, to be certified as legitimate business in America to a certain extent. And maybe that can help you to get more capital, more access. So I, I encourage everyone to make sure legally they're structured correctly, have accountants, make sure that they know what they're doing. Um, you're filing your paperwork on time. So in instances like this, God forbid it ever happens again, but you are prepared, um, or not even if it happens like this, you are prepared to go to a bank. One of the things that really helped us is um, we had our documents available to be able to get them in time when money ran out. But making sure that your business is structured, you have access to all your paperwork, you know your EIN number, you know um, you can access bank statements because a lot of times that is the hurdle. You know, that is the, the hurdle you have to get past of, can you do it? Yeah, thank yeah. you. You know, this is a time when I think there are a lot of people that are watching what's going on in the world and just wondering, you know, how much long-term change we're really going to see in our society when it comes to these issues that we've been talking today, when it comes to racial justice and equity and access to capital. The thing that's so clear to me right now is that the systems that govern our life, they're tainted by this ingrained racism and implicit bias, but it feels like there's a change coming in a way that's different than anything that I've seen in my lifetime and my career. And certainly participating and being involved in this COVID relief fund and the efforts around it. That's been one of the great privileges of my career. It brings to mind the word of the words of the poet Langston Hughes. So America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath America will be. And like there's there's just so much in that of the entrepreneurial mindset and the entrepreneurial experience. And I think the great vision that we can have for our community when entrepreneurial opportunity really truly does become equitable and access to capital does become equitable. So as we wrap up, you know, Ruben, leave us with, you know, a vision of a vibrant future state in which access to capital is plentiful and equitable here in Kansas City. You know, how do our city and our country look different than they do today? It's key um, to really, um, you know, helping to to build and sustain thriving communities. And, you know, just listening to Chris's story, I mean, it's, it's always just reinforcing just to kind of hear him talk as an entrepreneur and, and understand his challenges. You know, always love to hear the stories about our entrepreneurs um, who are also just so connected to the community. I know Chris is, you know, just being a business in the community, but also just what he does in terms of supporting the community. I mean, being involved in Lincoln Prep. Uh, I remember when I was uh, going around riding my bike 
you know, a couple uh, months ago, um, um, stopping by Lincoln Prep with my my wife and and, and seeing um, T-shirt kings, you know, sponsoring uh, Lincoln Prep there. And I took a picture of that and, and shared that with all the banks that we were working with, you know, with, and you know, reminding them, hey, we're not just supporting a, a small business here, an entrepreneur, but you know, this is is an entrepreneur that deeply cares about his community, and and we we gotta, you know, we gotta support those those businesses that. Um, you know, mean so much to the community, not just in terms of their, their business and the jobs they create, but also just, you know, the, the fact that they're in the community, that, you know, they send their kids to, to the public schools in, in the community and they're, they're connected to that community. So I think, you know, that's, that's where I feel we need to get back to in terms of, you know, how, how we're, um, we're supporting our community, how banks and financial institutions are supporting their community and, and being more connected to their community. And, you know, our role as a CDFI being a part of that and continue to kind of grow, um, grow our relationships with not just businesses, but with financial institutions. Um, you know, we're constantly trying to innovate in terms of how we, we, um, we structure our financing to make it more accessible, make it more, you know, more, uh, something that, you know, businesses can, can, um, can really use and help them grow. So the more we can kind of increase that flow of capital into communities, uh, I think the better we'll be and the stronger we'll be. Chris, you know, similar question for you. you know, leave us with that that vision of a vibrant future state in which, you know, more people have the opportunity that you've had, that you fought for, that you built. You know, what does that look like? How is our world different? And, and Ruben, this is, this is definitely no disrespect to all cap. Don't take this the wrong way, but we'll know that the world is a better place when there's no need for all cap. Yeah. When, when, you know, you can go to, anyone can go to your traditional lending institutions and be treated fairly and get the financing that they need to operate. Um, so that's, that's one of those things. And it's almost as if Ruben, you're working to put yourself out of business and educate um, traditional banking institutions of there's a lot of great businesses out here um, that deserve a chance and you guys are overlooking them for whatever reason. Um, so that's kind of where I can see that there's, you know, when, when that happens, I think things are really working. But in the, in the interim, places like AltCap are definitely filling that void and giving uh, small businesses hope and financing and an ability to, to just operate. I saw on Instagram, a lady was talking and said, you know, when it comes to black people, if you equate it to a monopoly game, we went around the board 400 times and never got paid. And now you want us to be able to buy the same things. And then even when we're able to buy the same things, you either stole it from us or you burnt it down. And you still want us to be able to operate equally. Um, so, you know, having that head start, it makes a difference. You know, when you talk about the comparing uh, the wealth of a household, um, when for generation after generation, nothing was passed on except for traditions and recipes. Um, there is no comparison. How can I compare my family's net worth to your family's net worth and you had a 400 year head start? I mean, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but it, it has to get better. Um, and, and part of that comes with just the, the cost of capital. How can my money be more expensive than your money? And you had a head start. And how am I supposed to catch up? How, am I, how, how can we have the the same credit rating system when nothing was passed to me and things were stolen from my ancestors. 
how, how are we how are we compared the same? Fortunately, I think um, black people have done an awesome job of adjusting and and competing and figuring out a way to get this far. But when you talk about equality and equity and those things, until some of those systemic things kind of go away, it's very, very difficult to, to catch up. Well said. You know, Chris, Ruben, I am so grateful that y'all took time out of your day to, to kind of share your experience, to talk about what you've experienced over the last few months, to talk about your hopes for the future. You know, with people like you leading the way, I'm confident that Kansas City is going to have a bright one. Um, you know, and I, I hope that over the, you know, the next 20, 30, 50 years, you know, we can keep working together yeah. to make sure that, you know, as Mr. K said, everybody in Kansas City really does have the opportunity to be uncommon. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this Kauffman Foundation podcast. For more stories on growing an inclusive economy, please visit us at emkf.org forward slash podcast. The Uncommon Voices series brings new perspectives and opinions on topics related to the Kauffman Foundation's work. The perspectives of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kauffman Foundation, but are presented here to celebrate uncommon voices and civil discourse to move conversations forward.